I think it's a combination of things. Um, The first would just be a lack of empathy. Um, For some reason, there's just this arrogance um, and this unwilling spirit um, of just not wanting to listen, not wanting to even accept the possibility that somebody's experiences might be different than yours. Um, I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, and I think there's also just a lot of fear, you know, we don't want to believe that, that that's the case. We don't want to look into our family of origin and know what might've happened in our past to bring us to our present. We don't want to, you know, believe that this system, this country that we pledge our allegiance to might have some broken facets to it that need fixing. And it was in New York that I began to be able, I I found language for the thing that I had been experiencing my whole life was that yes, racism is real and it is a problem that's affecting many people and it's a pervasive problem and it affects people in ways that even the affected don't even always realize, you know? So have you noticed that the rhetoric around race relations in the United States seems to have gotten louder and louder every day? In fact, according to a new Pew Research survey, the majority of Americans say that race relations have gotten worse over the last few years than better. And if you jump on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook even, it's in most conversations. It's definitely in the political space. It's being discussed and agonized over in every single sector of America in different ways. But are the conversations moving us forward or are they making it worse? Are we listening to one another? Are we seeing each other, hearing each other? And are we accepting? This past weekend marked one year since the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, where it seems the goggles were completely taken off and we were seeing for the first time, firsthand, that racism really still exists in America. It's always been there, but all of a sudden, it was out in the open in your face. Since Charlottesville, nothing has gotten better. It's only gotten worse. We've seen more and more of these rallies and clashes. The debate even around the NFL protests still lingers. And yeah, unarmed black men are still being killed. Recently, a young black woman was brutally murdered in plain sight in Oakland, California, where a white man basically slit her throat out in the open. Here in Florida, the Stand Your Ground law is back in the headlines. Yes, the same law that allowed George Zimmerman to be acquitted for the murder of young Trayvon Martin. And I can reference so many more instances where race is the basis of the narrative and it's not getting better. This is where we are in America. There's a white America and a black America, and it's seldom that one tries to understand the other. Everyone is in their own corners. No one's coming to center. So I gathered some friends to talk to me about what it looks like to be white in America and what it looks like to be black in America. This week, I'm releasing three episodes dealing on this very topic. It's taken a lot out of me to be brave and have these conversations. I actually didn't even want to release these episodes, but 
I think I have to. I think it helps the conversation. And I believe your eyes and hearts will be open to your fellow citizen after hearing these conversations in their entirety. I ask that as you listen to these episodes, you keep your heart open, you keep your ears open, and you fight to jump out of your corner and into the center, into elevated conversations regarding race. The conversations will bounce around between my two guests, Sarah Casterline, who is a missionary and a mom. She's white. She grew up in South Georgia. And uh, Sarah has had an evolution of thought regarding race and pain. And I'm going to walk you through her process. My other guest is Andre Henry. Andre recently was the editor of Relevant Magazine. He is a recording artist and an activist. He never set out to be an activist, but the events of recent shootings lit a fire under him. Between Sarah and Andre, I hope you get a picture of America, where we stand and where we could be. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Altitude Collective conversation piece that I am so excited to get you guys to listen to because I think this conversation, this episode is going to be so powerful. Um, I have one of my best friends in the entire world, Sarah Casserline, joining us. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Neeks. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I've been um, really looking forward to this conversation because I Me think too. it's a conversation. Yeah, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Um, it's a conversation that I think will go pretty deep, which, um, is nothing new here at the altitude collective. Um, but I've entitled this conversation being white and woke. What were your thoughts when you saw that? Honestly, I laughed. I laughed. I was like, Oh no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I mean, really just because a lot of times I still don't feel like I'm quote unquote woke, you know, yeah. I still feel yeah. like I'm so new to this conversation and um, mm-hmm. just all of the events surrounding it and our nation here lately. And so I'm just like, Oh my goodness, he has yeah. picked the wrong white girl for this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. No, I, you know, I think I've picked, I've picked the, um, the perfect person because I know that you've been on this journey for the last several years um, uh, you know, when it comes to, uh, race, race relations, all the things that are going on in our nation. And so I think it's going to be a treat for our listeners at the altitude collective to hear kind of your thoughts on what's going on. And, um, I think it's going to be awesome. So yeah. before we get into all of that, why don't you yeah. kind of introduce yourself, tell us who you are, um, get the, the listeners, uh, acclimated to, you. All right. Well, hello, everybody. Um, my name is Sarah. Um, I am currently living in the Columbus, Georgia area. Um, I'm from a very small town uh, called Camilla. It's down in South Georgia. Quit laughing, me. <laughs> you know you love it. Um, but anyways, I moved here about four years ago with my husband, Roman. Um, we have a two-year-old son named Jackson. 
Uh, he's our he's our little miracle kid. Uh, mm-hmm. Doctors gave us a less than five percent chance of ever having a baby, so um, mm-hmm. it was a surprise and the best surprise mm-hmm. ever. But um, yeah, so I work from home. I um, I watch him and I kind of freelance as a bookkeeper and medical coding and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's great. Love it. Nice. So give us a little bit of a background or a backdrop to Camilla. You said it's in South Georgia. Um, what's what's the biggest city maybe that it's um, near? And then what's kind of the, the makeup of the city as far as uh, demographics? Yeah, so... Camilla is, I mean, when I say small, it's, it's literally a very small city. We have like four red lights in the whole city. Um, and so, uh, about 30 minutes to the North is Albany about 30 minutes South is Thomasville. So if you're going to know a larger city in Georgia, it's probably those two. Um, there's a highway that runs straight through, um, connecting those three cities. So, you've ever driven through Georgia, there's a chance you've probably driven through Camilla and just didn't know it because you left it so quick. But um, yeah, it's, it's really small, really old. I would say demographically, um, it's probably a really good mix. We have um, a large uh, African American community. We have a large Hispanic community. Um, There's a lot of farms in the area. So there's a lot of migrant workers. Uh, that come to the area. Um, and then there's, uh, probably maybe 45% of the population is white. I would guess okay. I, I'm really not sure. So don't take my word for that, but, um, yeah, demographically it's, it's pretty diverse. Um, but as far as how the community operates, it, it's not diverse at all. Um, Mm. There's a lot of racial tension, not just in that city, but really just in all of South Georgia. It's got that deep South, um, you know, uh, trying to figure out what word I want to use. um, Just that, just that issue, that heart issue. It's been there for a long, long time. There's a lot of history and um, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. So you, you grew up in Camilla. Um, what, what was like the thing to do in Camilla? Like what, what did you do for fun while you were there? We left Camilla and went to Albany. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's really not a lot to do. Um, I know there were, in some of the high school students, you know, they would go out on somebody's farm and go drinking or something like that. But mm-hmm. really, if you wanted to go and do anything, you either went north to Albany or south to Thomasville to go to the mall or the movies or whatever. Like we didn't even get a Walmart until I was well, a for real Walmart until I was like in high school. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. <Right. laughs> okay. Awesome. So uh, the way that, and, and I've, I, I've driven through obviously, you know, um, through Camilla and have been to Camilla and that kind of thing. It's actually when you get into like the, the downtown area, um, it's kind of quaint and nice. I mean, coming from like a city and you want like a small town feel like you literally will get a small town feel right yeah yeah, that's true i mean um we we definitely do have 
you know, some historic buildings down there. You have the mm-hmm. sidewalk with all the street shops and, you know, mm-hmm. that community kind of mindset. But um, I just, uh, we'll just say that's not the whole picture of the town. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what was growing up like? Um, maybe give us give us a picture of some of the things that you're kind of alluding to. Um, that picture that's not so picturesque. Yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, and honestly, I was really blind to it growing up. I, I was really just ignorant of racial tension, that kind of stuff. I see it more now, not living there. Um, but just even the way the communities are set up, you know, there's the white part of town, there's the black part of town, you know, and you don't, you don't really cross those lines. You know, you don't, mm. you don't go driving through the ghetto as they call it, or, you mm. know, and, you know, even little things. I, I read something the other day online and I had never even realized that it was something in my own hometown, but, um, it, I can't remember where it was that I read it. I wish that I had, but it was saying that a mark of racism in some small cities are that uh, black people will work in fast food restaurants and white people will, will work in sit down restaurants and be the waiters and the waitresses. And that's even true in our city. There's certain places where you are more likely to see black employees than white employees and vice versa. And so there's just these um, invisible lines all across the city. And, you know, I I would say that a lot of people don't even know that they're there. This is just the way Mm -hmm. things are and the way they always have been. And it's that kind of mentality. Um, Mm -hmm. They're really just kind of asleep to it. Yeah. And so I love what you said, like, you know, you're when you kind of look back, you know, at your time in Camilla, now that you're, you know, up in the Columbus area, um, you're looking back and you can, you know, because of maybe some of the things that have been going on here recently and kind of your um, your awareness um, to the things that are going on recently, you are now thinking back and there have been things maybe that have happened or maybe that you were a part of not realizing that, um, it was playing into the culture. Now, with that being said, um, you know, we've, the, the term white privilege has kind of really blossomed over the last um, couple of years. And I'm not necessarily sure that everyone understands what that means. Um, I'm wondering, were there any experiences when you were growing up that today, looking back, you would classify um, as as white privilege? Yeah, um, I thought about that question for a while. Um, I, I can pinpoint one major um, just attribute of my own life, um, and that would be my education. Um, my entire education, I went to a private college prep Christian school, um, which not to say that private school is bad or anything like that. That's, that's not what I'm trying to say here, but, um, you know, in a community that is that low income, I sometimes wonder if it's priced the way that it is to keep a certain demographic out. Um, you know, lower minority families, they just are not going to be able to afford a private college prep school. 
Um, Mm -hmm. And so that glass ceiling is kind of already there before kids Mm -hmm. are even old enough to recognize, you know, that it's there, Um, you know, and, but I really think more about smaller moments, you know, I never had to worry about someone calling the cops on me while me and my friends were hanging out in a coffee shop in the mall. I never Mm. had my parents sit me down and tell me how I needed to act and behave if I were ever pulled over by the police so that I could make it home, you know, just things like that, that just were never on my radar. They were never an issue or um, a topic of discussion in my house. Um, And I feel like too, it's just worth being said because a lot of people hear the term white privilege and, you know, you, you see a lot of defensiveness or at least I do in the white community where it's like, Oh, well, um, I worked hard for what I have and I came from a bad situation and blah, blah, blah. Nobody's saying when they talk about white privilege that you didn't have to work for what you have. Nobody's discounting your childhood or your background or anything like that. White privilege is simply the fact in our nation that white people are looked at and treated differently and oftentimes afforded different opportunities just because of their skin color. Um, Mm. And that was something that it really took me some time to wrap my own head around because I mean, I, I used to, I used to say that same kind of thing, like, Oh, well I worked hard for my education and I worked hard to make the grades that I made and I worked hard to get my degree. But just the simple fact that I was able to go to that school in and of itself Mm. was a privilege and one that I didn't realize one that I probably took for granted. Um, so I just, you know, we can't be so defensive as white people when we start talking about white privilege and think that somebody's trying to discount our work or, or whatever. Um, it's just a simple recognition, recognition that things are different in this country based off of your skin tone a lot of the Mm. time. Yeah. Why do you think, um, why do you think white Americans have a hard time grappling with the fact that they may have it differently than, you know, those that are African-American or Latino or, you know, um, why do you think, why do you think it's hard for, for them to kind of step into that compassion? You know, I think it's a combination of things. Um, the first would just be a lack of empathy. Um, for some reason there's just this arrogance, um, and this unwilling spirit, um, of just not wanting to listen, not wanting to even accept the possibility that somebody's experiences might be different than yours. Um, I think that's probably a big part of it. Um, and I think there's also just a lot of fear, you know, we don't want to believe that, that that's the case. We don't want to look into our family of origin and know what might've happened in our past to bring us to our present. We don't want to, you know, believe that this system, this country that we pledge our allegiance to might have some broken facets to it that need fixing. Um, Mm. I would say those are probably two of the biggest 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've been on this journey of stepping into race reconciliation. What does that mean? And what does that look like? So to me, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, I definitely don't call myself an expert on this, but to me, I feel like racial reconciliation has two facets. Um, the first is just recognizing that there is an issue. You know, I, I think, I think we say all the time at a, at a very general level, oh, you know, our country has a problem or we're so divided as a nation, but we don't take ownership of that division. We don't look at Mm -hmm. what resides in our own hearts or what we might have grown up believing or what prejudices we carry against others. We don't take any kind of ownership. And so we're quick to point out division as, you know, at a national level, but not at a personal level. So Mm -hmm. to me to have any kind of racial reconciliation, we first have to look at our own selves and our own hearts and um, just find out where, where is their bias? Where is their prejudice? Where, where is their hatred in my own heart towards somebody who doesn't look like me and take ownership of Mm -hmm. that. And then from there, Mm -hmm. we can really start to move into friendships and relationships and communities and churches and, um, just act out of a pure heart of wanting equality for all of our brothers and sisters, for, for wanting mm-hmm. everyone to know that they are valued by the Lord and seen and, you know, afforded the same kind of opportunities that we've enjoyed. Um, but it really has to start at a very personal level. Yeah. And so what really set you on this path? Honestly, you did. <laughs> um, gosh, I, you know, really racial reconciliation. I don't think I had ever even heard of that term until um, after I moved to Columbus. And um, when you and Simone, your wife, or people who may not know who Simone is, um, <laughs> when y'all first uh, befriended us and we really started getting close and having conversations, um, really there was just this whole new world opened up um, to me about what being black in America is actually like, um, experiences that you guys have shared and that kind of stuff. Um, the main event that I can pinpoint um, I'm sure you probably remember, but when we were at your apartment uh, watching the events taking place in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed, um, and I yeah. just remember that was such such a huge conversation. That was such a um, just heart-shattering conversation. I remember when we left your apartment, me and Roman just sat in the car and looked at each other and didn't say a word because, I mean, yeah. some of the... Some of the experiences and the thoughts we had never we had never encountered that we'd never thought to ask for that to be honest yeah, you right. know um, and so from there that that was really the starting point that conversation um, there there was something that you said that night that I can still hear you say um, and you said, can we just as a nation be sad that someone died, that a black man died? Mm. Like, can we just grieve that? 
And every single time there's another shooting or whatever, I've, I'm so serious right now. I hear that in my head. Can we just be sad? Can we just grieve and right. admit as a nation for what is going on? Like, right. Can we just unify in that? Um, right. But from there, you know, I... Oh, and, sorry, go ahead. And really, no, you're good. Um, you know, I think part of that too, and, and we just see it all over the place, even, you know, at the time of this recording, uh, the shooting at a high school in Santa mm-hmm. Fe, uh, recently happened. And, um, you know, I, I would say the same, the same thing we're, 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 we're not giving ourselves time to, to grieve loss, um, or life's loss. And I think, you know, when it comes to these, these shootings, um, you know, where police are involved and, you know, there's the back and forth conversations about, um, well, they should have done, you know, X, Y, and Z, they should have done what the police was, you know, maybe asking them to do and and things like that. We can get to those conversations later. We can look at the tape. We can have the experts look at the tape and all of that. But there, there comes a point where we have to grieve the loss of life. And I feel like oftentimes even, you know, in, in school shootings, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're so quick to politicize everything. And so, right. And, and so quick to, you know, this issue, this instance where, you know, a gun was used and, you know, life was lost. I can either put that in my bag as fodder to, push my agenda or I can take it out of the bag, throw it away and say, no, that doesn't prove anything, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I feel like we were, we're so quick to go there versus really sitting down and say, okay, let me just grieve this moment. Let me just be sad for a moment. And I think if we can allow ourselves to do that more often, I think we can actually tap into the human side of ourselves and be able to view events through a different perspective when they, when they show up again, but unless we're allowing ourselves to really kind of like grieve and be human, then the next time that these, this happens, Oh, okay. Yeah. I saw it on Twitter or yeah, yeah I saw it on the news. And then we, we just, we, we move on. It's just so day to day now. Yeah. We're, we're really truly getting desensitized, not just, not just to um, acts of racism, but yeah, shootings, you know, just the violence in our society um, (laughs) where we consume news and events in such a fast pace. I mean, it's easy to just bounce from one tragedy to the next. And, you know, next we're talking about whether we hear Laurel or Yanny or whatever, you know, (laughs) you know, and we're just really super ADD about stuff. But, you know, and I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier, though, like we have got to learn the art of empathy and learning Mm. how to actually lay our own opinions, our own political parties, whatever aside and listen to someone else's perspective, someone else's pain and be willing to enter into that place and actually grieve with them. And, and then once, once that work is finished, then we can say, okay, now what can we do? You know, what can we actually do to resolve this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, going back to Ferguson, I remember it was, man, we were up late, late. you know, the, (laughs) 
so late. That was and before then, we had a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, right. And I remember, you know, the TV's on and we're, I mean, really kind of just locked in. I think there was a moment for me where there was a little bit of an, an unbelief of what was going on, but then also, well, yeah, you know, not, not to borrow, um, this line, but this is America. You know what I mean? Like, um, I, I remember that. I remember like, you know, us talking to you guys about, you know, our perspectives and listening to you guys. And, and I remember seeing like in you, um, and Roman as well, but he's not, he's not on the, (laughs) the interview. So, Um, But with you, I remember seeing this kind of, um, I don't know, there was a new awareness that was coming over you, you know? So what happened? Let's, let's keep going. What happened after, after Ferguson? Well, you know, I really just started doing some reading and started doing some research. Um, I found out about this ministry, Latasha Morrison. Um, she has this ministry called be the bridge. It's all circled around racial reconciliation and, um, providing just so much information. I mean, if there, if there is any kind of question that you may have about what white privilege is or, you know, I mean, just literally anything, um, you can go on that website and she just has incredible resources. And so I just started reading and there was just this huge, um, revelation in my own life of, wow, like I have been so blind and I have just been so, um, closed off in my own little world, my own little bubble. I mean, it, it was a whole new, literally a whole new world to me. I mean, I went to a private school where pretty much I would say 99% of the students were white. I went to a Southern Baptist church and all the attendees there were white. Um, y'all were really my first close black friends. And so Mm -hmm. just being friends with you guys and entering into that relationship was a whole new, you know, just a whole new world and experiences and like just really a sadness in my own heart of realizing my own blind spots and my own ignorance. And, um, just looking back to times where, you know, I've defended white privilege. You know, I I used to share the memes about Obama and stuff like that on Facebook and, you know, just hateful stuff. And just really, I just really entered into this place of one, trying to trying to learn and research, but two, just repentance and, and confession and just asking the Lord really to... Mm-hmm to get this out of me, you know, to get this deep rooted, hidden, uh, racism out of my heart and out of my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just been a journey ever since then. I mean, there are still times where, you know, I might walk into a gas station or something and maybe there's a guy that looks a little bit creepy and I have this thought run through my brain and then I'm like, "Mm -mm, where did that come from? Where's the root of that? Is that from the Lord? Are you looking at this person as made in the image of God? Or are you looking at him through old, dirty glasses, you know? And um, so it's, it's a constant, 
um, growth journey. And I think that's something else that, that we all need to recognize is, you know, racism is old. And I mean, it is so old. It's as old as time and it is deep rooted. And so this is not going to be, you know, a one and done conversation. It's going to be a lifelong journey for each of us if we choose to go on to it. Um, and there's going to be some personal demons we have to face along the way. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love this idea about, um, kind of this, this personal growth journey and kind of, you know, checking your thoughts, checking, you know, your perspective and, and things like that and, and, um, sifting them through, you know, sifting them through God. Right. And, and and seeing where the growth comes from that. I'm wondering, um, you know, I want to go back to your, your gas station kind of story there. When you see a black person, what do you see? Or maybe even, you know, when you were, when you lived in Camilla or maybe, you know, folks in Camilla, when they, when they look at a black person, what is it that you're seeing as, as a white person? What are you seeing? So I, um, just the environment, um, that I was raised in the education that I, that I got influences throughout my life. I don't want to say that it was my parents or, you know, pinpoint one specific person, but I can just, I can look back over my life and I can see how a lot of my life I was raised to be fearful. Um, you know, I, I was told that I was a pretty white girl with blonde hair and that made me a target. And so, um, one of the biggest things that I have to unlearn is just that fear. Um, I will, so going back specifically to that gas station incident where, you know, the guy was looking kind of shady, I am immediately having to, um, say to myself, you're, you're not a target. You're not in danger. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, just kind of disarming that fear, you know, where is this coming from? And also recognizing, I think this is so, so important. You know, when you look at the, the incident with Starbucks, I, I can make a phone call as a white person to a police and say that I feel like I'm in danger. And that could eventually lead to that black person losing their life. You know, I, and so it is not a joke. Um, and it is not something to be taken lightly, this mindset of fear, um, that we may have grown up with or been taught that, you know, a shady looking black guy is to be feared. Um, that's not truth and that's not godly. That's not, um, you know, something that we need to live out of. That's what gets the cops called and gets that man killed for no reason, you know? And so, um, that is just, and I don't know if that's what everybody thinks in Camilla. I really can't, I really can't speak for them. Yeah. But I know that that has been my own personal journey and really not, not just with black men. I was taught to be cautious around men period. So, you know, but mm. in particular, um, a person of color, um, whether that's black, Hispanic, whatever, um, I was for whatever reason. And I mean, I'm, in school too. I was just taught over and over, you're a target, you're a target, 
you know, and so just having to disarm that fear and having to realize that fear is not from the Lord and it's, you know, it has to be fought and all of that. And, and do you think when they're saying that to you, you know, you, you be careful, you know, your target, that kind of thing. Do you think that kind of talk puts you kind of at a different level as far as where, you know, every person on the planet should be on the same, you know, playing field, um, at least, you know, when it comes to your, your, your color and, and things like that. Do you think that when they were saying these things to you, giving you these cautionary tales or advice that put you in a different place above those men of color? Absolutely. Um, I, I feel like it, I feel like it also teaches, um, and maybe it's not meant to, but it, it also taught me this, uh, base idea that white skin is prettiest and blonde hair is prettiest. And, and that's why I'm a target is because, you know, because of these attributes that I have, I'm, I am prettier than another type of human, another demographic of human. And it kind of kind of does give you that um, just mindset of pride or arrogance or, you know, I'm worth more than you or my safety is worth more than yours or my security is worth more than yours. I don't think, and, and that's why I think a lot of racism is just straight up arrogance because I don't feel like, you know, people who would tell me that were truly realizing or understanding I mean I could be wrong I I guess in my um, optimistic view of the world I don't feel like they knew that that was what they were communicating Um, but you know when you really start to dissect comments like that um, it is rooted in racism in and of itself All right, everybody, we are back here with the Altitude Collective podcast, and I have someone uh, really special uh, on the show today. Um, This conversation is going to be a good one. It's one I've looked forward to having for a while now. And um, just know that um, this this conversation may get really heavy, but I think it's going to be a conversation that is pretty transformational, not only for myself, but for those of you that that are listening. And uh, uh, we're we're just going to go deep and we're going to be real and we're going to be super, super honest. So on the line right now, we have Andre Henry. Andre, how are you, buddy? Hey, I'm great, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I have uh, been following you for quite some time now. We have some mutual friends. and, and, And honestly, I feel like that's how I started following you. I had a friend reach out saying, you know, you need to follow this guy. And since that moment following you brother you have been a fresh you've been a breath of fresh air you have uh really started to uh inspire me and um and i I want you to just tell folks like who you are what are you passionate about um where you're located that kind of thing yeah so uh, like you said i'm andre and i work at a media company in orlando called relevant so um I guess you could say I'm a journalist because I write and uh, I'm yeah. managing, I'm the managing editor there. So I, there you go. I oversee a lot of content that relevant produces. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and outside of that, uh, some people call me an activist because my passion is racial justice and I talk a lot about it. I, mm. I educate people um, about racial justice. So I've, I've spoken at universities and churches and art events and, you know, <clears throat> All kinds of things, singing and speaking and presenting about racial justice. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell us, like, we're just going to jump in and, and see where the conversation goes. But mm-hmm. tell us, what is racial, what is, what is the definition of racial justice? Hmm. Well, I mean, I don't think that you could make, you know, a definition, right? Like, if someone yeah. says, what is the definition? Like, uh there's no universal definition to which everyone needs to subscribe. But when I'm talking Mm. about racial justice, I'm talking about looking at American society, especially even though racism is a global problem, um, looking at American society, because that's what I'm familiar with and saying, look at these racial discrepancies um, across our society and how can we make those things right? Mm. Okay. Yeah. And, and and so when you're when you're describing this to people, you know, like you said, you've you've gone to universities and things like that, um, Mm -hmm. kind of educating people on it. What has the response been to uh, to you speaking out on this stuff? Well, it's mixed, you know. um, Well, I've never had like a negative experience speaking out like when I'm, you know, when I'm lecturing at a university or um, I've done some community organizing as well like I don't have like you know anyone that's like shut up you know <laughs> like yeah. while, I'm, while I'm speaking or anything <laughs> like that right yeah. Um, yeah. no one's ever just like gotten up and left you know when I present here okay. or anything like that so nothing negative okay. I mean most of that stuff okay. is kind of online right like mm-hmm. that's, that's what we do with social media typically anyway is people sit behind their keyboards they say negative things about others they criticize and listen there's nothing wrong with criticism I mean I criticize American society every single day. So <laughs> I think criticism is actually a holy thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But I will say it's, it's mixed. The responses are mixed and mostly positive, but you know, I get some negative feedback online sometimes from talking about racial justice. And I think that anybody who does do this kind of work under, you know, they, they get some backlash, especially online, probably, you know, but some of my heroes, they get death threats and things like that. And I don't get death threats. So (laughs) I've got it pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, I wanted to jump into our topic, uh, today, which is black in America, being black in America. Mm -hmm. Um, what is it like being black in America today? Yeah. Um, so everyone has their own experience, right? So yeah. you might talk to some other, you know, black people and they might say something different. But for me, the example that I have given people is being black in America is like finding the he- the heaviest solid granite boulder that you can find and just carrying it around with you everywhere you go. Mm. Um sometimes being black in America and especially if you have an understanding of America's racial traditions, racist traditions, if you understand the history of racist progress, 
in this country, then it can be burdensome. You know, when you watch the news, uh, when you have conversations with people, as you go to work, as you try to conduct your everyday life. And that's actually something that I've been doing since 2016 is carrying the heaviest boulder that I can find around with me so that people can see that as a visual and see that um, sometimes or oftentimes, you know, living in my skin uh, is really heavy. Um, it reminds me of a quote from James Baldwin, who's a famous writer, who said, to be black and relatively conscious in this country is to be in a rage almost all the time. And mm. I do not feel angry most of the time, but I understand where that anger comes from, that abiding anger that some people have about in, injustice and racial injustices that they experience. Um, I don't feel angry most of the time, but I do understand the feeling of being burdened, frustrated, exhausted, outraged at times, oftentimes outraged. Um, <clears throat> and for a time, I will say, you know, yeah, I did feel like I was angry a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, that's how, that's how I, that's how I think of it. And that's how I communicate that to mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Yeah. So what really spurred you into being vocal, um, about maybe the plight of the black man or how you're feeling and, and how did you take up, how did you take up your cause? I, I know you just mentioned, uh, you know, the thing about the boulder, maybe kind of speak, speak to that. How did you take up your cause? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been somewhat aware of racism. You know, I grew up next to a member of the Ku Klux Klan in a small town in Georgia. So oh, wow. I never really had a point in my life where I didn't know about that kind of thing, but I definitely had a different understanding of it as a younger person. Mm -hmm. So, and I think I had the understanding that a lot of people have right now, which is that, you know, I lived next to an overt racist, you know, someone who harassed us because we looked and were different from him, you know, and for a long time, that was what I thought of as racism. And so I thought that sure, racism is a thing, but that it was rare for people to experience it. And I thought that, you know, you had to be saying the N word and you had to be you know, hateful and all this other kind of stuff. What I didn't understand for a long time, or I didn't have language for, I should say, is the less obvious forms of racism that exist in our society. For mm -hmm. instance, just a small example. When black people go to look for housing, there's research that has shown that black people are shown less properties than their white counterparts. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, and I, I, I chuckle because sometimes you have to laugh at the stuff. You know? right. um, sometimes you have to laugh to keep yourself from crying or to, for being right. angry or whatever. I don't know. But that is something that a lot of people wouldn't know. 
right? Because when you go to look for a house, you don't know how many pro- properties that that person has shown other people and what backgrounds they have, what the color of their skin was. Mm. So I didn't know about things like that. Yeah. So, but I did have this, I did have this feeling, this experience of being a black person in the world and being able to see and recognize that people with darker skin are treated differently than people with lighter skin in this society. You know, that's something I knew uh, on an anecdotal level, on a personal Mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. Okay. But when I got older, as I, as I, as I grew, as I, sorry, but as I got older, I began to understand that first off, it wasn't just personally that I, it wasn't just a personal feeling that may or may not be wrong. The thing that I was experiencing and the thing that I was able to discern, even though I didn't have language for it was real, <laughs> you know, um, when I moved to New York City, I went looking for an apartment and I called this Craigslisting, this Craigslist listing in Harlem. And the guy on the phone is listening to me and he is ex- he is ecstatic that someone like me is going to rent the apartment. And he's like, I don't meet decent people very often. You know, maybe we can be friends. Da 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 da. I mean, I don't know this person. I haven't seen this person. He's already yeah. like ready to like make friends with me. Right. Yeah. I get to Harlem to look at the apartment and I see the look on his face when he sees me. It dropped. He was so disappointed when he saw oh, me wow. at the sight wow. of me. Yeah. And he didn't rent me the apartment. Oh, I had wow. the money. I had the money to pay for the apartment. I had a good job. I had well over, you know, the salary to cover the expenses. The only thing that changed was that he saw me. (laughs) Wow. And it was in New York that I began to be able, I I found language for the thing that I had been experiencing my whole life was that yes, racism is real and it is a problem that's affecting many people and it's a pervasive problem and it affects people in ways that even the affected don't even always realize you know right Um, not to mention those who are not affected in that way right Um, this is a long way to answer like how did I get active now I love it keep going so I think a lot of people were awakened by the Trayvon Martin case. And I think Mm. that was 2012. Mm -hmm. And there was this discussion around Trayvon Martin's death that if Trayvon Martin were white, would he have been found suspicious and would he have been followed by Zimmerman and would he have been killed? Then you have Eric Garner and Michael Brown and Sandra Mm. Bland and the Charleston Nine Tamir Rice and you know mm-hmm. the list goes on and on and on. Right. You know, when when Dylan Roof walked into that church in South Carolina and he shot those nine innocent people, I did at that point think I have to do something. And I've always made music and I thought, well, I'll make some music, I'll make some songs, you know. And nobody really liked my songs. 
<laughs> you know, like, I mean, they, I shouldn't say nobody liked them. Nobody told me that they didn't like them, but they didn't really catch on. They didn't seem to have much of an effect. I knew that I wanted to contribute something, you know, and I, I thought, well, music is a powerful way to communicate. Mm-hmm. You might have to edit some of this out just to get to the point because I'm taking so long to get to, you know. No, this is so happened. good. Keep going. Keep so, going. So, you know, next thing you know, the following year, 2016, Ind- Independence Week, out in Sterling, is killed by his local police officers in New Orleans. And the following day, Philando Castile is shot in front of his girlfriend and four-year-old daughter by a local police officer in Minnesota. Right. That week was the, that was it for me. That was the final straw. That was the watershed moment. I had experienced this stuff since I was a kid. I'd grown to recognize that the problem was a lot more complex and subtle than I had recognized before. And then you had this intense period of kind of obvious, you know, discrepancies, differences in the way that law enforcement handled black people versus how they handled their white counterparts. I mean, look at how Dylan Roof was handled when he had just shot nine innocent people who had gathered to pray, you know. Somehow mm-hmm. he made it into police custody alive. Mm. Um, but Eric Garner, who was armed with loose cigarettes, did not. <laughs> you know. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, even even Philando Castile, who is in front of a child, he's in front of his own child, is sh- shot to death. You know. Yeah. Um, so at that point, it was it was after Philando Castile's death people were scratching their heads and saying, well, how could something like this happen? (laughs) And I'm like, y'all, this stuff has been happening. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know? Like, Mm -hmm. there's something frustrating about people standing around and talking about this as though this was unusual, as though it were a mystery, because they did not want to identify the fact that black people are five times more likely to die in police encounters than their white counterparts. Wow. So I, I also, sorry, the, the other thing around that time was people were posting all these thoughts and prayers posts for Philando Castile's family and for the situation in for America and all this. And I'm thinking like thoughts and prayers are not enough. I actually, I I got on Facebook, I fired up Facebook live and that was the first, I just titled it thoughts and prayers are not enough. And I started just talking about how, first off, this is not a mystery. This is not unusual. We know that this tends to happen more often to black and brown people. Even if even if it's a black or brown person in the uniform holding the gun, it still happens mm-hmm. more often to black and brown people that they die in police custody, police mm-hmm. encounters. So we know it's not a mystery. And 
we have to do more than say that we're going to think and pray about this. It's fine if you say you're going to think and pray about this, but if you say you're going to think and pray about it, then actually do some thinking and do some praying because that that can help. But this sentiment that we're going to think and pray is, you know, it's empty a lot of the time. That was the beginning um, of me just, I made a commitment to myself that week that one, I was going to invest as much time and energy as I could into understanding the way that our political, criminal justice, prison, and societal systems work. I wanted to know the truth about how race informs the way that our society runs. Mm. I committed to investing my body in the struggle for racial justice. And I committed to no longer let the news cycle determine when I would talk about it. So no matter what happened in the news, because people were probably going to calm down in a couple weeks about what had happened. But I was going to keep talking about the same thing. I was not going to wait for the next headline, unarmed black man dies in police custody in some city in the U.S. before I talk about this again. Mm. And so I started every single day posting something about racial justice. Um, uh, three years ago now. Um, and that's how, that's how that happened. I didn't intend to become an activist, you know, like I, I didn't think of it as activism. I just thought this is the thing that needs to be done, you know? Yeah. And then people started calling me an activist, you know, which yeah. I, I never felt really comfortable with, you know, cause <laughs> I, you know, but that, you know, I guess that is, you know, what happened that I, I guess that day I became an activist or that week, I guess I, be, I became an activist, but I just made those three commitments to myself and I've been sticking to that. What are you, um, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, police officers shooting unarmed black men and and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking back to, um, the incident that, you know, kind of just came out over the recent weeks about the officers in Mesa. Mm -hmm. Okay. The four Um, officers that, that beat that man by the elevator. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so when, um, you know, it, it seems like I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit. When we've seen these videos in the past, a lot of it has been, at least on mainstream media, a lot of it has been, you know, white officers doing this to uh-huh. black men. Uh-huh. And in this video in uh, that came out of Mesa, um, you know, we're seeing a black officer. Uh-huh. Um, punching uh, this black man. Um, And I have heard in conversation and I I think a little bit, you know, in some interviews on mainstream media, um, news media, where people are saying, well, see, 
it's not just white officers, (laughs) it's black officers. Like, why are you guys so upset with us? Why aren't you mad at him? And so how, how does that square with you? How does that make you feel when you hear stuff like that? Tell me about it. Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that question. And there are a lot of misconceptions about the way that racism works or that systems of oppression work, right? Because underneath that, it seems like someone wants to say, well, it seems like the argument there is if this were really an issue of race, then Mm -hmm. it would always have to be a white person abuses a black person, right? And they think that it works that simply. But that's not how systems of oppression work. It's not that neat and tidy. So at one point in time, we know that it was legal to have slaves in America. In fact, the law had completely protected this institution, you know, mandating that slaves that run away be returned to the plantations they escaped from and returned returned to their so-called masters. But we also know that during their t- during that time, there were also free black people, right? Yeah. Does the fact that there were some free black people mean that slavery didn't exist at that time? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Right? Um, it's not that neat and tidy, is what I'm saying. So yeah. also, yeah. during that time, there were times where black people were um, hired as, or not, I shouldn't say hired, but, uh, they were given the job of being the overseer, right? Mm -hmm. So here is a, a black slave whipping a black slave, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you've seen Django Unchained, remember that scene where I can't remember the doctor's name, but he talks to Django and says, okay, you are going to play the part of a black slaver, a black, Mm -hmm. a black man that's selling other slaves. Right. So these things. So I use all of that as an analogy to say that when we look at these systems, um, they are not that neat and tidy and straightforward. So the fact that you see things like that, you know, the fact that you see these things that look exceptional do not mean that the system of oppression doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. So. Right. Yes, there are times where you have black and brown people who abuse other black people, black and brown police officers that abuse um, other black police officers, um, other black uh, citizens. Right. That doesn't mean that black people are not still disproportionately (laughs) brutalized when they are in police encounters. Mm. It just means that sometimes black and brown people do that very job you know Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. take up jobs in a white supremacist system you know or or they take better yet and this might be the one that you want to include that that black and brown people sometimes take up jobs in a system that is made for whiteness and that's all that means you know and so Um, what else do I want to say? Uh, I also want to say that anti-blackness is not something that non-white people are immune to. Right? So there's a book called Chokehold by Paul Butler. He was yeah. formerly a prosecutor. 
and he he's a black man and he talks about how he used to take pleasure in sending young, young black men to jail you know and he was good at it and he mastered it and he knew how to play on these underlying racial ideas to get these men sentenced until he was framed for a crime that he didn't do and he woke up to the fact that wow this system does a lot of injustice and so he talks about that as being a black man that you know played a part in a system that was made for whiteness and it just goes to show that black people can believe racist ideas about themselves black Mm. people can also become agents of the very system that was never made for them to flourish in and this happened in the 90s too where there was all of this so-called science you know these criminologists were talking about uh, black youths as super predators right 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 and the, the 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 crazy We saw this in the 90s where all of these criminologists and studies, so-called, you know, scientific studies were being published talking about black and brown youth as super predators. And the most unfortunate thing about that time period is that black and brown people of the older generation believed it. Mm. And so they were looking at their own children Mm. and believing that their own children were somehow dangerous and more prone to violence and crime than others, which is a really old racist idea that black people are somehow more prone to crime and violence. Mm. It was just, it evolved. It made it to the 90s. It's it's still endures today. Right, Um, right. And some of our parents fell for that lie and they believed it about their own children. And so I say all that to say, like seeing that uh, a a Latinx police officer or a black police officer or some person of color abuses another person of color does not mean that race is not a factor. Yeah. It means that that is the dominant culture <laughs> and right. And they have, they have, okay. Um, Beverly Tatum, Dr. Be- Beverly Tatum, her book, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Um, mm. talks about our atmosphere, our racialized atmosphere as, uh, smog. And we all are smog breathers. She says, we all inhale it. We all breathe that air. And so we're all contaminated by it. And so, you know, sometimes you see people of color doing harm to black people. And it's not because race is not a factor. It's because we all breathe in the same air. So this conversation continues with both Sarah and Andre on Thursday. I want you to process. I want you to search. I want you to come back and listen to part two of my conversations about race in America. 
Thank you for listening to the Altitude Collective Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review over on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with all of your people. We'll talk real soon.